Explain. Let's turn our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, please. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. As you're turning there, let me uh, update you with a, a couple things here. Um, first of all, after our two Sunday school classes complete themselves, adult Sunday school classes in a couple weeks, um, we're, we're going to have two classes following that. Um, Dennis Lucas in the Post and Beam Room will be teaching a class called Created for Community. It's a 13-week study of the early church and lessons we can apply to our modern church. And then um, Josh Callahan in the auditorium uh, will be uh, teaching the the Lord's Prayer, the biblical model to revolutionize your prayer life. Um, it'll be an eight-week class, and it'll be an in-depth look at the Lord's Prayer and following its teaching and how it changes our prayer life and our, and our church. So those are a couple things to be thinking about. We'll have... Uh, more op- more information on that um, next week and in the bulletin and uh, sign-ups for, for everybody. Um, also, I just want to mention while flu season is going around and all the colds and stuff, don't feel bashful about not shaking hands, alright? Just wave high and consider yourself uh, uh, hand, hand-shaking. Continue to greet each other, just don't touch each other. Probably good. Uh, 1 Corinthians 1, 1 through 3, uh, we gave the background of this um, this great letter here last week in Acts chapter 18 and just a quick review here um, Corinth was located in modern day Greece it was a major port city there were lots of temples to Greek and Roman gods it was a major economic center it would have been like our Wall Street really uh, today and also it would have been like our Las Vegas today with its um, rampant immorality um, a thousand temple prostitutes roamed the streets. Uh, it was filled with immorality and had a, it was infamous for them, had a reputation. And then, that was about 80, 50 or so. And Paul plants this church um, in 80, 50, 80, 51. About four or five years later, Paul started getting reports back that things were not doing well. And so Paul writes this letter to the Corinthians from the city of Ephesus, where he is ministering, five, four or five years later. And I want to, not to um, bore you, but to show you the structure of this letter and to show you some of the things that were going into this situation, really tell you about Paul's relationship here in the church at Corinth before we get into these three verses in 1 Corinthians 1, 1 through 3. Because it was some time after Paul left Corinth that there was a man named Apollos. And Apollos was a very uh, educated man. He was from the city of Alexandria. And he arrived there and he had been in Ephesus and he was teaching Christianity. Though he only knew a, a certain segment and part of it. He only knew um, John's baptism. John the Baptist's baptism. The, 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 the teaching of that. And there the two tent makers who worked alongside Paul in Corinth, Aquila and Priscilla, Acts 18.26 says, they explained to Apollos the way of God more fully, more adequately. adequately. And, and so, so his understanding was, was enlarged. He could see more of the big picture and how it fit. And Jesus Christ, the, 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 the fulfillment of this. And so armed with this new knowledge, Apollos goes to the province that Corinth is the capital there. 
And Acts 18.28 tells us that he was very eloquent and he was very successful in proving to the Jews from the scriptures that Jesus of Nazareth was the Messiah. And so, um, uh, uh, Apollos is able to say that Messiah that you expect is Jesus. And scripture makes this clear. Your Old Testament scriptures. He was very gifted as an orator. Uh, he, his teaching probably was very different from that of Paul. Paul had studied simplicity and getting to the point. He says that in 1 Corinthians 2, 2 through 4. Apollos was very skilled in, in, in speech. And, but there was no difference in the message that was preached. Because Paul can say in 1 Corinthians 3, 6, and 8 that Apollos is continuing the work that Paul had done. So the message was still the same. The difference was in, 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 in presentation and persuasion. And apparently, so much so, that there were many people in Corinth that were um, uh, lining up with other speakers and other teachers. And it was causing uh, divisions here because there, some people would say, well, I'm, I'm with Apollos, I'm with Peter, I'm with Paul. And the really um, uh, noble ones and the really pious ones would say, well, I'm with Christ. <clears throat> here. But... Um, sometime after this, though, Paul wrote this letter to the wrote a letter a letter to the Corinthian church. This is a letter that we do not have. It's not inspired scripture. It's a letter that's perished. And if you look in um, uh, and with me in First Corinthians chapter five <clears throat> and verse nine, you can see a hint of this letter where Paul says, I wrote to you in an epistle, a letter, not to company with fornicators. So this is obviously a previous letter. We don't have it in our, in our scriptures here. We know nothing more about this letter or how Paul came to write it, except that one of the things that he wrote to was associated with the idea of immorality. And um, the letters disappeared. Really, it doesn't matter because that letter was misunderstood by the Corinthians. And so that's why Paul needs to write this letter, 1 Corinthians. Along, next came up some contacts with the Corinthians. The household of Chloe had brought him news of cliques in the church, 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 11. For it has been declared to me of you, my brethren, by them that are of the house of Chloe, that there are contentions or quarrels among you. The church had written him a letter, 1 Corinthians 7, verse 1, concerning the things whereof you wrote to me. They had written him a letter, probably brought by, in 1 Corinthians 16 and verse 17, uh, Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus, who would have added their own comments. And then Paul answers that letter that they write. So Paul wrote a letter, it's missing, we don't know where that is. They wrote a letter back about some questions, and now Paul writes this letter of 1 Corinthians. And it's from here we learn that all is not well in the Corinthian church, four or five years after it was begun. And some very plain speaking in this. And the situation was serious, and Paul uh, uh, wants to send Timothy to Corinth. He had sent him before. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 17, and chapter 16, verse 10, 11, it says that he, Paul had sent Timothy before. And Timothy is joined with Paul in, in the uh, reading in the second book of 2 Corinthians. So his visit was short. He wasn't able to do very much. But the situation worsened. And there were some very serious problems and serious disputes here. One of the things was a denial of Paul's authority as an apostle of Jesus Christ. A representative with authority of Jesus Christ. And so it was so serious that Paul, who is in Ephesus... 
felt it is necessary to leave his work in Ephesus and pay a hurried visit in the attempt to set things right. And that visit you can read about in, uh, in 2 Corinthians, <clears throat> where Paul has uh, taken three visits to Corinth. So when Paul writes this letter here, he has already made a visit, additional to the one when the church is founded. So two visits have been made. And uh, uh, he, he comes again in sorrow, 2 Corinthians tells us. And then he writes this letter. And so that's kind of the situation here. This letter. Uh, when it's all said and done, there are probably four letters. There was the first letter that's been lost. There is the book of 2 Corinthians that we're going to go through. There is a letter that is described as being very severe, and then there is 2 Corinthians. And so, Paul is dealing with the church at Corinth. Now, let me kind of give you an overview of the book very quickly here. There are five main parts in this book. There are like essays on specific topics that Paul is bringing uh, the, the, the church in Corinth in line with. And what Paul does, and this is what we need to do in our own counsel and our spiritual lives, is define, he defines the problem in each one of these five sections. He first of all defines the problem. Then he responds to the problem showing how they are not living out what they say they believe in the gospel. And by the way, all of our sin is a failure to believe the gospel. You say, well, I know it. I know the gospel. Well, it's more than that. Belief changes us. It, it's, it, it's a trust, all right? It's, a, it's, a, it's an action. Belief leads to action. That's true belief, according to James and other passages we saw in Titus as well. Um, so, so he responds to the problem with how they are not living out what they say they believe. Because every part of life is to be seen through the lens of Jesus and what he has done for us. And lived in line with what we believe in the gospel, about the gospel. So here's the five sections. You can divide them up this way. Chapter 1 through 4 speaks about divisions in the church that were coming up. So we're going to kind of hit the entry to that here this week and the next week. Chapter 1 through 4. Divisions of the church. People were aligning themselves after spiritual leaders that were in the church. Apollos, Peter, Paul. And Paul says, you guys got to be kidding me. This is not a popularity contest here. We are a community who is centered around Jesus. And these teachers, these leaders, these ministers, they are just servants of Jesus. Jesus is the center. Who he is and what he has done is the center. And so he is going to... Bang, and, 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 and he's going to uh, uh, push firmly into their hearts this understanding that it is the cross of Christ and the resurrection of Jesus that is at the core. Not divisions over people's favorite teachers. That's the first section. The second of five is chapters five through seven, where honestly he talks about sex and immorality. And there were some people who said, well, we are free in Christ because we're forgiven. Basically, do what we want. And Paul brings it again back to the gospel and says, no, Jesus died for these sins. And our sexual integrity is, the way, is one of the key ways we respond to Jesus' grace. And it's not because, uh, and, and it's not like it, our, our bodies don't matter because Jesus is redeeming our bodies. We're told to present our members, our bodies, as living sacrifices to God. Uh, and, and the truth is, on the resurrection day, Jesus will bring our bodies in resurrection. So Jesus is redeeming our bodies. So, so think that way about sexual immorality and live purely for God 
enjoyed in the covenant of marriage, that's it. The third section of five is chapters eight through ten, and the issue was food. You say, well, what about food? People's favorite foods? No, it was it was it was a meat from animals that were sacrificed in the Greek and Roman temples. And there were some people, including unbelievers, who, who said you shouldn't eat that meat because they would offer they would later put it in the marketplace at a reduced price. And they said you shouldn't eat that meat because. Um, your allegiance to Jesus Christ is Lord, and when you eat that meat, that was offered in temples, and and uh, and 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 there may be people that conclude that we can worship Jesus and other gods. And Paul says, if that's true, if there are people who are concluding based on you eating this meat that was offered at the temple, now bought at a discount price, you know the manager's special. Um, uh, that 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 you can have allegiance to Jesus and other gods, then you shouldn't eat it. But he also says this. Don't eat and mislead them. But he says this. If no one will misunderstand your actions, eat it. It's meat. It's protein. That's all it is. We know that's all it is. It's nothing particular here. And in this situation, in this discussion in chapters 8 through 10, he's saying at the core of this is God's love that is shown to us in Christ. And that is what, to, what is to frame the issue. Then the fourth issue of five is chapters 11 through 14. You see, there were people in the gathering when they would come together who'd be, who were being very, <coughs> excuse me, very individualistic <coughs> in their worship. And it was chaotic and, and destructive to the, to the family gathering. <coughs> and some people would say, I got a revelation from God. And they would spout out. And some people would say, well, I can, uh, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm really having an experience with God. And, and it was distracting in the worship. It wasn't that those things were particularly wrong. What was wrong was it was not building up the body and it was causing chaos. People being very individualistic in their worship and their gifts. It was destructive to the family gathering. And Paul says God's spirit is to work through everybody in a unified way. And he says, much like a human body works together for a purpose. We're all parts of Christ's body. And the highest goal is not to draw attention to yourself or use your gifts just to minister to yourself here, but it's to use your role to serve others and build up the church. That's the important thing. And then the last issue is in chapter 15. It's about the resurrection. And this is one of the most famous chapters in 1 Corinthians. There are some people who are saying, well, the resurrection doesn't matter. I can do what I want here in my body's uh, with my with my body, um, that part's just going to go in the ground. We're just an old carcass, right? When I die, that's it. And Paul says, "You got to be kidding me! Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Your bodies will rise, rise as well. Your body and your soul, your body is an indispensable part. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ is an indispensable part of the gospel. First of all, it's a historical truth. That's what he starts out with in First Corinthians fifteen one through three. And they had been uh, they had been uh, warped to understand that uh, the resurrection was um, uh, something that was meaningless. They were lost and and, and understanding <clears throat> that way <clears throat> because of the uh, the Greek understanding of it. But Paul says it is Jesus' victory over death and evil and the source of our hope and promise that unifies us. It's a source of power. The resurrection is, and so the gospel isn't just some moral advice. Do better. It's not some individualistic private spirituality here. 
where I can huddle in my cave and worship. The gospel is what brings together the body of Christ, and it is the announcement about Jesus that opens up a whole new reality. So when you bring all this together, in chapter 16, by the way, it's the closing and the, and, the, and the final greeting here. When you bring it all together, 1 Corinthians is about seeing every part of life through the lens of the gospel. It's not good advice. It's good news, and that good news changes how we live. So chapter 1, verses 1 through 3 of 1 Corinthians. Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ to the will of God, and Sosthenes, our brother. To start off here with verse 1. I want you to see, obviously, here, first of all, we have the author. The author. And I believe his his point and application is respond to his messenger. Here's what Paul is saying here. Paul is saying this. I, Paul, am nobody special. In fact, he says in other places, I am the least of all saints, and he says I'm the chief of sinners. But he says, God, through Jesus, has summoned me to be sent forth by Christ in the plan of the Father. Turn with me to Galatians chapter 1, please. Galatians chapter 1. Paul had to defend his apostleship, this special status that he has, that God had appointed him to, to the Galatians. And he says, by the way, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, if you're looking for it. So go to your right a little bit. Galatians chapter 1 and verse 1. Paul says, Paul, an apostle, not of men, neither by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. He says, this is a divine summons, a call to me. Galatians 1, verse 15. He said, but when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by his grace to reveal his son in me, that I might preach him among the heathen, immediately I conferred not with flesh and blood. Paul says, I had this divine calling on my life. Here, and and what he's well, the reason he's establishing that is because they're they're saying, but Apollos, he's well, he's a much better speaker than you are. Uh, Peter, he's got these things going on in, in, that that really speak to his credibility. And Paul said, yes, but I'm I'm an apostle, and I might not be the most uh, flamboyant and and charismatic a, a speaker and personality here, but God's given me this message. And this is what you need to hear. Not because I'm special, but because God has this calling on my life. And then he mentions Sosthenes, our brother. This could refer um, to the Sosthenes in Acts 18 who were beaten after the, uh, the uh, uh, declaration of judgment by, by Gallio. He could have become a believer later on. We're not sure, but obviously the Corinthians knew who he was. So Paul links himself to him. Oh, what's the... What's the point of Paul having verse 1 of the passage for us today? We understand Paul was an apostle. We receive his word. We're still reading these authoritative letters. I want you to understand this. It doesn't matter if it's my four-year-old daughter, myself, your spouse, or a donkey. If someone speaks to you the word of God in context, they are to be understood as a messenger of God. It doesn't matter if if it was the voice of God from heaven or the voice of a a, a 14-year-old young man. 
If God, if the word of God is spoken to you in context, you have a responsibility to respond to that truth because that person is a herald of God. They are not the voice of God, but the words of God are the voice of God. And you're to respond to that, to the truth from that herald because the heralds are proclaiming the very voice of God. And when someone calls you through the scripture and it's correct, I mean, I'm not talking about taking verses out of context here. But it is correct that you are to align your life with a clear understanding of Scripture and the plan of God and live in line with the living that, that, that comes uh, out of the Gospel. You must respond to that. You must not prickle up. Your quills shouldn't start to raise when you're criticized and it's from God's Word and you know you need it. But what you should do is come under subjection to the majesty of the Word of God. Whether that is um, this voice here that's speaking to you this morning. Or a fellow believer, or a guest speaker, or a spouse. Or your children. How many of your children have God used to show you things in your life that were not in line with God's Word? That's pretty humbling, isn't it? Or a donkey like Balaam. You are to respond submissively to the truth of God. So respond to his messenger, God's messenger. And that's what the Corinthians needed to do. They didn't do very well at it, so that's why Paul had to go and visit after this letter again. And then write 2 Corinthians said, you responded later on, not in a worldly grief, regret, but you responded in godly repentance, change. And he encourages them with that. But notice verse 2. Verse 2. Here you have an association Respond to God's relationship. Look what verse 2 says. It's so, it's, so, it's so packed here. To the church of God, which is at Corinth. There's one church, right? One true church. And they're expressed in different locations. To them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints with all that in every, call, every place call upon the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. Here's what... Paul is saying here. Respond to his relationship. See, the local church is to be managed around the idea of the household of God. It's made up of individual households and families. Look through our church directory of different households, different families. But our members are one household of God. 1 Timothy 3, 14-16, Titus 1-5, show us that Paul's task was to set this household in order. So the local community of God, the church, can flourish according to his plan. Conduct themselves as a member of the family of God through the local church, inside and outside of our gatherings. See, church is set in order in the community life. And for the church to be a powerful force for Christ, it needs a harmony as a unit where each part understands where they fit in that order. And that's what the New Testament letters lay out. Every local church, the household of God, is made up of individual families that are to be designed according to God's instructions for the family. And so a major task of the church and its leaders is to set in order what is lacking according to the New Testament guidelines for the church and for the families. Here's what Paul is saying here in verse 2. First of all, he's saying this is not my church. He says to the church of God, which is at Corinth, this is God's church. This isn't Bickle's church. <clears throat> this isn't, um, you know, so-and-so who's been here for 40, 50 years church, or so-and-so who's been here for 10 years, or so-and-so who's been here for two years. This is God's church. 
It's bigger than you and me. Yes, you're a part of it. But ultimately, this belongs to God. This church here is possessed by Jesus. He says the church of God, which is at Corinth. And then he says to them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus. The word sanctified means set apart, but it has the idea here of set apart to be a possession of God. So, uh, possessed by Jesus. The church, uh, Jesus is the head, we're the body. What happens if you remove the head? Then the body's dead, right? He is the, uh, he is the master, we are the household. He is the groom, we are the bride. He is God, we are the temple of God he is building. He's the farmer, we're the vineyard. He's the general, we're the soldiers. And so what God has done in Christ Jesus makes them the possession of God, His new people. It's very important to understand. Because it's our union with Him. Our inseparable connection with Jesus Christ. Through Jesus, died on the cross for our sins, raised from the dead, according to the Scriptures. Through that, that we're joined to God, He's reconciled us to Him. We are summoned then. There's an inseparable connection. We're summoned to be holy. In fact, look what he says in verse 2. That them are sanctified in Christ Jesus. Called or summoned to be saints. Saints. The word means holy ones. Called to be ones who are holy. We're called to be a unique people that displays the excellencies of God. And God sees us as holy because He is holy. We're summoned to be with Him. This is our identity because of our union with Jesus. This is our calling. This is how to walk in our life from and encourage one another and help each other fulfill this calling. Be holy as I am holy. And by the way, in the setting of this book, we'll get into it later, but it's amazing that God can call these people holy. And it shows the power of God's justification is declaring us, declaring over us through Christ that we are seen as righteous in God's eyes. And there's nothing that can change that in His eyes. Now He calls us to keep our behavior and action in line with that calling. But God sees us as holy. And we're to help each other fulfill this calling. But notice I was also observing here in verse 2 that the church of God, which is at Corinth, that means we have union with believers here locally in our area and globally. Uh, and, and by the way, eternally. In other words, what's going on right now in mid-coast Maine is not any less or any more important than our brothers and sisters in Phuket, Thailand, Marseille, France, Santiago, Chile, Bristol, England, Arapleton, Rockport, Camden, Washington, Rockland, Union, and Hope. We are joined to each other because Ephesians 4 tells us we have a common bond. In fact, turn there please. Ephesians 4. And verse 3. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, he says, there is one body and one Spirit even as you are called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, <clears throat> who is above all and through all and in you all. <clears throat> I 
The Church of Jesus Christ and those who hold to the core of the faith, what has been assumed by all will never change. The things that there can be no other interpretations on. The church is the new man, the new people of God. People who have submitted to the risen Christ as the Lord. Who have believed Jesus as the Savior of all their sins and no other saviors. And await his return. You see, in the new people that God is creating for himself in the coming age. Corinthians, 2,000 years ago, had to share with us today. With all the saints. Notice what else Paul says here. With all that in every place call upon the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. You know what he's saying here? Hey, Corinthians, with all your little sects that were going on, your little cliques, what you're doing here is pushing people away who are connected to you by God through Jesus. And folks, we cannot be the church that says we're the only ones that are doing things right. That can't be us. Because that's arrogant. And this passage here makes it very clear that God is doing a global work, isn't he? Now, it's important for us to be committed to our local churches. Because we're not accountable in a certain sense to... We are in in, in one sense, but in, in in a more specific sense, we're accountable to each other here, aren't we? We're accountable to, the, to, 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 to our members here. But what Paul is saying is that Jesus is creating for himself a people. Fellow believers in every place who call in the name of our Lord Jesus, who put their trust in him and pray and worship him. And there is a common association. And where to respond to Christ's relationship? It's a big deal. And these words in verse 2 are not something that we should pass over very quickly. But we should think about our connection with Jesus. And that our hearts are also bound to each other in this room. And they're also bound to fellow believers around the globe. So much so that Paul's, uh, the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 13 can say, when there's other people that you know of in a, dis- in a location different from you who are in prison, he says, remember them in prison as though you were in prison with them. And it's a big deal. And so that should not just be fleshed out here in our connections and and partnerships with other ministries, but it should also, obviously, the most obvious place it should be um, uh, fleshed out is here amongst our own body, isn't it? So-and-so over here doesn't have a corner on the truth. So-and-so over over there in the back doesn't have a corner on God's truth. God has brought us into the truth. And you know what Romans 6 tells us? That the truth is there and God has poured, it's like he has poured us into it. Sure, he pours his truth in our hearts, but it's like the truth was there, and he put us into the truth. There's a common vessel here. And so there should be a unity that's building, and, 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 and you, you, don't, you don't know somebody very well in here? Well, guess what? According to this passage and other passages, then you need to get to know them better. Um, you don't know somebody's name in this room? Well, admit it, first of all, and then have each other over. Get together. Have each other over for dinner. Get to know people. Don't just segment <clears throat> into, your, into, your, into your families, um, <clears throat> into um, your, your common interests and your common age. Get to know the body of Christ and enjoy each other. There's something that happens at the dinner table, a certain leveling, doesn't it? A connection there. 
learn to love each other and learn to love other believers. Thirdly, he gives this assurance in verse 3. He says this, Grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, in the Jewish greeting, it was common to say, Shalom, peace. Uh, in the uh, uh, Arabian culture, there are a lot of, uh, the, the, the common greeting is Salam. And Paul adds to this idea of peace, grace. And what he's telling us is, Corinth, you need to respond to the resources of God that have been showered and lavished on you. In other words, the sum total of all God's activity toward his human creatures, and specifically to those who have been redeemed, is special grace. Grace. God has given himself to us mercifully and bountifully in Christ. There is nothing that is deserved. There is nothing that can be achieved outside of his grace. He has made peace with us through the reconciliation of his son. He has broken down the wall and barriers between God and us through Jesus. So Paul is saying that the sum total of all the benefits that you and I receive as a recipient, someone who's received God's grace, is found in these two words, grace and peace. That word peace is the idea of well-being, wholeness, nothing missing, welfare. Each one kind of flows out of the other, doesn't it? They both flow together, though, from God our Father. God our Father. We're made effective in history through our Lord Jesus Christ. Respond to his resources. Your track record today and your um, uh, uh, record of how you did today does not affect God's grace and peace. The days that you do horribly, God's grace is there. The days that you do a wonderful job of living for God's glory was only by His grace. It doesn't change. And the truth that you have now peace with God and have been ushered in a relationship with God the Father, joined in the fellowship of the Trinity, the triune God, is because of God's grace. Each flows out of the other. And Paul sets this basis here to begin a understanding of who they are, their identity, and who they are in Christ. Notice verse 1. An apostle of Jesus Christ, the will of God. Verse 2. The church of God, sanctified in Christ Jesus. All that in every place call upon the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Verse 3. From God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. To say, remember who you are. Remember who you are. Respond to God's messenger. Respond to his new relationship, the church of Jesus Christ, and respond to his resources, grace and peace. Let's pray.